Good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you. They tell me that the other meeting let out a little bit late. I don't know if we still have people coming or not, but we'll get started. Uh, I'm going to conduct this partially as a lecture and partially as discussion. So the closer you want to get together, the easier it will be for us to talk to each other. Just a quick word about who I am. I started in the ministry and then went to biblical research at the General Conference. I was involved in conducting a number of Bible conferences around the world. And uh, then Anne had started a business at home so she could stay home with the kids. And uh, I joined her full time in 85, but still remained active theologically in the church. And uh, we sold that business a year ago, which gives me a chance to get back even more into uh, theology than, than we had before. And uh, Anne is the one that was Anne's House of Nuts, my wife. Uh, and so I certainly appreciate the support that, uh, that she gives. Uh, my interest is particularly in, in the foundations of Seventh-day Adventist belief, the role of scripture in Seventh-day Adventist belief and biblical worldviews and how that impacts uh, academic disciplines. And initially, when they talked to me about making this presentation, we were talking about something slightly different. We were going to be talking about if Christianity is a relationship with God, why doctrine? Why doctrine if Christianity is a relationship with God? Why not just simply, simply focus on, Christian, on the relationship and not be concerned about doctrine? Um, now, I'm going to still deal with that topic, but I'm going to deal a little bit with foundations also, uh, uh, try to deal a little bit with creation and with, with the Sabbath as an illustration as to how that can impact our relationship with God. And so, starting out, uh, you know, what is Christianity? People have looked at Christianity in so many different ways, and in the third century after Christ, a man by the name of Simeon Stylites, uh, a pagan converted to Christianity. He sold all of his, his worldly goods, set aside enough to keep his sister uh, for her retirement, I guess you would say, in, in our day and age. And then he gave the rest of the church and then went out into the wilderness to meditate. Found a little cave out there so he could separate himself from the world. And pretty soon the nearby townsfolk discovered that this pious monk was out in this cave meditating. And so they wanted to be close to the pious monk. And so they started streaming out so that they could get closer to the pious monk. And pretty soon he said, you know what? I came out here to be separated from the world and the world has surrounded me. So I'm gonna go further out into the desert and I'm gonna build a platform and I'm gonna live on that platform so I can separate myself from the world. And uh, pretty soon people discovered where he was out there on his platform. And so, uh, they came along and built platforms around his platform so that they could get the, close to the pious monk who was separating himself from the world. Well, when that happened, then he built his platform higher, in which case they built their platforms higher. And according to tradition, he finally lived out his life on a platform that was 60 feet high in order to keep himself separated from the world. Now let me ask, is that Christianity? Okay, now meditation, of course, is a good thing. But... Did he take it to an extent that it wasn't really the essence of Christianity? And th there are so many other things uh, that we often look at as kind of the essence, kind of the basis of what Christianity is. We, you know, we mentioned meditation, works. Ah, if I can just perform enough works, uh, then I'm a Christian, and then I will be saved. 
or if I can put in place enough social programs, or if I can gain enough knowledge, you know, if I memorize the 28, uh, then I am a Christian, and then I will be saved, and so on and so forth. And so there are so many different ways that people have looked at Christianity and uh, attempted to develop their religion about that, around that. Now, obviously, each of these are important to Christianity, but they aren't the foundation, they aren't the essence of what Christianity is. I like the definition that Christ gave himself for salvation in John 17:3. I'm sure you can say that verse with me. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Okay, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Sorry about that. Okay, and there are many other places in Scripture where, where our relationship with God is pointed out as the key foundational aspect of Christianity. John, you know, wrote, I, I, I'm writing this with you in order that you might have fellowship with God and with his Son. And, and uh, Hosea likened the relationship between God and his people to the marriage relationship. Uh, Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they might have the love of God which surpasses all knowledge. And so Christianity then is a relationship with God. We were created for fellowship with God. Now unfortunately, of course, you know the story, we'll go through this quickly, but our iniquities have separated us from God. Our iniquities have separated us from what God's original intention for us. He originally in created us for fellowship, and sin has separated us from his face. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Christ came in order that that relationship might be restored. God's plan of salvation restores us to fellowship with God. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet enemies, God sent his son into this world. And God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And so we come to our question. If Christianity is a relationship, why doctrine? Why Christian living? We won't deal with the second one today, but we'll deal with the first why not simply emphasize the relationship? And you know, we are moving into a society more and more that really is not concerned with doctrine. Uh, there was a book written a few years back on the history of doctrine. It was not an Adventist book, but uh, just in general, in general, the history of doctrine. And, and there was a review in the Washington Post on this book. And one of my Sabbath school members cut it out and brought it to me. And this review said this is a great history of doctrine, but this is the last history of doctrine that will ever be written. Why? Nobody's interested in doctrine anymore. Okay, so how about that? What is the role of doctrine in Christianity? Well, if Christianity is a relationship, let's ask ourselves, what are some of the dynamics in human relationships? What are some of the dynamics in human relationships? And then let's look and see if that gives us any parallels for our understanding of our relationship with God. Any ideas? Respect. Respect. Okay, very good. Respect. Communication. Communication. Good. Okay. Same thing. Okay. Respect and communication. Time commitment. Time commitment. Definitely. Time commitment. Trust. Trust. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Understanding of each other. Understanding of each other. Okay. 
Good. Anything else? Open-minded. Okay. Okay. Have an open mind to the other individual. Willingness to to hear from the other individual. Very good. Yes. Doing things with each other, a sort of shared history. Okay. Doing things with each other, shared history with each other. Willingness to change. Willingness to change. Willingness to change. Okay. Very good. I'm glad that we're catching all these things on tape. <laughs> Pardon? Loyalty. Loyalty. Okay. It's also commitment, depending on how far you are in the relationship. Okay, commitment. You don't have a deep relationship without deep commitment. Very good. Okay. Well, you've mentioned a lot of a lot of terrific things, and and all of those are essential to good relationships. Uh, and this is not intended to take away from any of that discussion, but I want to mention a few other things, a few things that you've mentioned here. One is. If you're going to enter a relationship with a person, does it help to know something about them? Okay, so knowledge of the other person? I mean, otherwise, you're just sitting there, you know, in a communicationless environment, having this relationship with a person you don't even know. You know, how satisfying is that? How long would that kind of a relationship last? Okay, so, so knowing another person, and that's what our text said there in John 17, right? And this is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God. Now that word know in the Hebrew implies quite a bit more than it does in the English, or not the Hebrew, I'm sorry, the Greek, implies quite a bit more than it does in the English language. You know, in the English language, if we know what kind of wood this is and what kind of finish it has and how many watts this is and so on and so forth, then we know something. But in, in the Greek and I understand in the Hebrew also, that word is more a relational word, but it includes information about the other person. Okay, so if we know the other person, that can help us to enter into a relationship. Now, knowing the other person doesn't make the relationship, does it? But it makes the relationship possible. Do you see the difference between that? It's not the foundation of the real. It's, it's, it's not, it's not, there has to be all of the other elements that we were talking about to make the relationship. But if you don't have knowledge, then the relationship is very difficult, if not impossible. Okay, now how about knowledge of oneself? Have you had difficulty ever entering a relationship with another person because you really didn't understand yourself? Or somebody else had a difficulty entering a relation with you because they didn't understand themselves? So understanding oneself is also essential to relationships. Now how about knowledge of the appropriate relationship with the other individual? For example, you know, my relationship if I'm dealing with the Queen of England, or my secretary, or my wife, or my granddaughter, or, or the President of the United States, each of those is going to have a different characteristic. And if I am going to enter into that relationship, I'm, that relationship must take place within the parameters of those characteristics. And you know, this is a place I think where often we kind of go astray, because we say, well, Christianity is a relationship, and so therefore I'm on a par with God. And so it's just like any other relationship. And it is a relationship, but it's a relationship that is unique. And uh, it is unique because it is between ourselves and God. Uh, there's another thing about relationships, particularly with our relationship with God. It's a law of the mind and character that we will be transformed according to the person or thing that we admire most in our lives. And so if we got, admire God most in our lives, what's going to happen to our lives? He'll be changed into harmony with the character of God. And if, have you ever noticed 
You meet somebody for the first time and within minutes you feel like you've known them all your life. And then other people, you've known them all your life and you feel like you don't know them. Well, if your character is in harmony with their character, you know, if your lifestyle, if your interests and so on and so forth coincide, it's going to facilitate the relationship between yourself and that other person. And so if our lives are molded into harmony with the character of God, then that relationship with God will be facilitated. In fact, God would like to restore us to his image. Why? Just because he's out there playing games, you know, and he wants all of these perfect people around or whatever. He wants to enter a relationship with us. And sin has separated us from that relationship. And so he desires that we trans be transformed because he longs to re-enter the relationship with us. Uh, now, Let's think about a couple, you know, living in Phoenix here and another in Frankfurt, Germany, and they're communicating with one another and uh, they've never met each other. And finally they decided to, to get married. So they decide on a location date, they fly in, they get married. And then what do they discover right away? Different. Discovered that they didn't marry the person that they thought they were gonna marry, right? Yeah, well, you know, they, they were building up this picture in their minds all along as to what this person was going to be like, and when they finally met, they discovered that that person really wasn't like that. Of course, that probably happens to some extent in all marriages, which is why it's important, all the other things that we mentioned about relationships here, so that we're open to the other person. Uh, but, you know, God wants us to know who he is so that we aren't blind dating him. You know, he wants us to enter into a relationship with who he really is, not with our concept of who he is. And so it's important that we know who he is so that we can enter a relationship with him and so that our lives will be molded into harmony with his life. Now what happens? You know, it's important to accept elements of who another person is, knowledge of who another person is. But what happens if we reject part of what another person is? What happens if we reject? You know, that's even more significant but not fully understanding. You know, my, my friend Michael, I hope you don't mind if I pick on you here. Michael is a fantastic archaeologist. By the way, Michael's dad was my professor at the seminary. And uh, I still remember all the wonderful times we had together. Anyway, Michael is, is an excellent archaeologist, known worldwide for his, his work in biblical archaeology. Now, suppose I said, you know, Mike... He's a very poor archaeologist. In fact, I don't even want to put him into the category of an archaeologist. How would that impact our relationship? By the way, I've known Mike since he was something like that. <laughs> Longer than he remembers me. <laughs> okay, what would it do to our relationship? Put a conflict immediately. Put a conflict in there. Now, that doesn't mean that Mike wouldn't be loving and forgiving and still seeking the relationship, but simply the fact that I am rejecting part of what he is uh, would definitely put a block in our relationship. And we're going to see that as we get into our relationship with God and see how rejecting key essential elements of who God is is important. And so what is so common is that we build designer gods. We build gods as we want them to be rather than the God who has revealed himself. And that, in fact, is the lecture yesterday afternoon uh, was pointing out, you know, people are becoming their own god, uh, they're developing their own concept of God. Yes. Said we create God in our image. We create God in our image. That's right. Exactly right. And particularly theology in the last 200, 250 years 
I mean, that has been a goal. You study humankind, you study human nature, and then you develop a God that fits that human nature. Okay, so I want to point out also that biblical doctrines fit together like a beautiful mosaic. Uh, a couple of years back, Ann and I had the privilege of visiting Iran. We were looking for pistachios there in Iran. Uh, the year before, only 1,000 Americans had visited Iran. And when I, I was in Iran almost a week, and I saw two Americans outside of our group that were there, and Anne didn't stay quite as long. I don't think she saw any other Americans. Even though we went to the three major hotels in, in Tehran, we didn't see any other Americans. Anyway, we went to Iran, and we were walking down the street and uh, stopped into a Persian carpet shop. And there was a carpet on the wall. It was about 14 feet by 16 feet. Just an absolutely gorgeous carpet. Uh, it was one of these European scenes of of a family out in the woods with mountains and waterfalls and glaciers in the background and then a lake a little bit closer and then a stream coming right by the family here and they're, they're around some, some rocks that have moss and so on and so on. The trees have moss and, and the little kids are playing with the dogs. And, and this was just like a painting. You would think it was a painting instead of a carpet. It was so finely done. Now all the pieces of that carpet work together. What if I came along and said, you know what? I don't like the blue. And that's just a little bit. I'm just going to pull it out. I'm just going to yank it out. And this shade of red here, I don't like that either. I'm just going to pull that out. Pretty soon, what would start happening to my carpet? <laughs> Fall apart. And it wouldn't look very good. Not something I would, I would want to, to put up in, in my, my front room or something like that. By the way, the carpet was only 35000 so it stayed stayed on the shelf, and today I would have suspected it's probably more like 70 or 80 with the devaluation of the dollar. Uh, okay, so anyway, that was, that was a beautiful carpet, but it was beautiful when it was seen in its entirety. When you begin to pull pieces out of it, you begin to destroy that carpet. Well, doctrine is exactly like that. Doctrine is also a beautiful whole. It's so often, yes? I was going to say, this relationship that we're talking about is a covenant relationship. That's right. Someone that's entered into a contract knows there's a lot of information, there's commitment, and there's penalty, and all kind of things that are written into that contract. And I think that that gives us an overall picture of this relationship. Yes, yes, that's right. Covenant relationship. It's a definite commitment of God to us and us to God. So, that's right. <coughs> so I want to take two doctrines and illustrate how those impact our relationship with God. I apologize, I was down in Brazil a couple of weeks ago and thought I got over something down there. And I don't think I totally overcame it, so. Okay. So how about the Sabbath? Let's think about the Sabbath. What does the Sabbath tell us about God? The Creator, okay. Anything else? You can rest in him for your salvation. Very good. We can cease our works just as he ceased his works. Wants to have a relationship with us, okay? You know, if somebody says, I want to spend some time with you every week, are they telling you something? They want to have a relationship. It's a sign of relationship. Very good. Okay, so it actually reaffirms what we're saying here. That Christianity is relationship. Anything else? Also, a sign of sanctification. 
right? Okay, so we'll make this, this part brief, but just to kind of summarize then, tells us that he is a personal God. I mean, that's the first thing you get. God in the Garden of Eden, that first evening of their creation, to fellowship with them. He didn't come back a year later, two years later, and say, you know, really apologize, but <clears throat> my intention in creating you was so that we could have a relationship with one another. He did that immediately with Adam and Eve. Okay, now, what does the Sabbath tell us about ourselves? Our limitations. Okay. Our limitations. We aren't the creator. We're the created. Total dependence. We're dependent upon God, the creator, for our sustaining our lives. It finally is a symbol of our acceptance of rejection of God, of his authority. That's right. Pardon? Okay. Very good. We're social entities. We're personal beings also, just like God is a personal being. Yes? It's also a sign of obedience. A sign of obedience. Good. And I want to come back to that before we leave the Sabbath. That's good. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, very good. So just as God is the creator, we're the created. Just as he is the savior, we are in need of salvation. We have salvation only through him. And uh, he is the one that gives us the spiritual rest and also the one that is preparing the heavenly home for us. And so the, the Sabbath tells us a lot about ourselves. Uh, does it tell us anything about the kind of relationship that we can have with God? Connects us. Connection. Okay. Connection with God. Yes. That was God's intention, wasn't it, when he gave it to us? Yes. It's a, it's a peaceful relationship, and it's a relationship that he, that he establishes. Okay. God, that he, a relationship that he initiated, and it's a peaceful relationship. Okay. So, in summary, just very quickly, you know, God is the creator, we are the created. Okay, been having some problems with my computer here. Sorry about that. Uh, so God is the creator. We are the created. God is our savior. We are in need of salvation. Our future is in God's hands. Uh, and so we can rest our lives in the future that God has given to us. Points to God as Lord of our lives. Uh, can you look at the stars and say, you know what? Seventh day is the Sabbath. Can you look at some event in nature and say the seventh day is the Sabbath? How do we know that the seventh day is the Sabbath? Because what God's revealed to us, right? There's no natural phenomena that would tell us that the seventh day is the Sabbath. So it points to God as the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of our lives. Let's move on. Oh, let me back up. So suppose we say, God, I don't believe you're my creator. I don't believe you're my savior. You see the impact of rejecting part of an essential element as to who God is? I don't believe that the future is in your hands. And so we begin to create the future ourselves because we can't trust God for that. We begin to, to plan our own salvation because we can't trust God for that. We think that we are the creator instead of God. Is that going to impact our relationship with God?
if the character of God is here and we design it here, our lives begin to be molded into the character of this individual and we're pulled away from the life of God. Thank you. <coughs> okay, so let's move on to the doctrine of creation then. <coughs> what does creation tell us about God? Omnipotent. Omnipotent, okay? All powerful. Ever present. Okay, the designer. Evidence of his existence. Evidence of his existence. Okay. He wanted us enough that he created us. Wanted us enough that he created us, okay. So he was longing for that fellowship that we're talking about. Yes. A desire to express himself. He desired to express himself. Very good. Very good. The reason why we're here, okay? Shows himself as a God of love. I mean, the beauty of his creation, the beauty that he shares with us, uh, the goodness of his character, he's a God of love. Okay, shows himself as a God of love. Very good. Yeah, master planner. Master planner? <clears throat> okay. Yes? Got a sense of humor <laughs> because he created me. <laughs> I think because he created you. <laughs> okay. Very good. Order and organization. Okay. Okay. Likes beautiful things. He's created such beautiful things for us. Yes. Happiness and joy. You know, look look up the word joy and then. And a concordance. And you'll find time and time and time again that that is repeated. That, that he, you know, Jesus came in order that our joy might be full. Very good. Yes. A God, okay, a mysterious God. We don't know everything about him. There's many things that he's revealed, but beyond that, we cannot go beyond that. We can, we speculate, but we have no idea. Our speculation relates to reality. Yes? And a God who's not just out there theoretical, but somebody who comes into our, to our world. Okay. Comes into our world in a physical way. Comes to dwell with us, to fellowship with us. Very good. All important aspects as to who God is. <clears throat> now, how many of you have heard of theistic evolution? Okay, can somebody tell me what theistic evolution is? We know what evolution is, isn't it, don't we? Naturalistic evolution. Everything came by chance. You know, some spark and some pool started life, first cell, and gradually theistic evolved. evolution is how God supposedly created through the mechanism of evolution by starting it and going through millions of years and bringing an individual to where he's called man. Okay, so God start, somehow started the first spark and guided that. Is there something you were going to add to that? Yeah, the evolution is God's tool. Okay, evolution is God's tool for bringing about creation. So <clears throat> maybe God started the Big Bang, and then he just kind of guided things since then. What does evolution tell us about God? What kind of a God do you have if you have evolution? 
Indifferent. Cruel. Cruel. Why do you say cruel? Death and suffering before sin, okay. Not powerful enough. Not powerful enough, okay. Submissive to his own power. Sub Limited to his own oh, power. Oh, okay, limited power, okay. Evolution is the best that man can think of as a theory if you take God out of the picture. Okay, if you take God out of the picture, evolution is the best that humanity can think of, okay. Okay, well, let's take, you mentioned several things here. One, he's, he's all-powerful, we said, the biblical account. He's uh, a God of love, and he's all-knowing. Okay, can you hold those? Yes. Sure. Okay, devil's tool to try to disprove. Okay, okay, very good. So, um, can you hold those three ideas together with theistic evolution? That God's a God of love, God of power, and God of knowledge. Can you hold those three together? You can have two of them, but you can't have three of them. You can say, he's a God of love, and he's all, all powerful, but he's just not very smart. So the poor guy, guy he's not working on all, all eight cylinders, he's working on five cylinders but he's still getting the job done because he's not powerful enough, because he's, yeah, not powerful enough, or because he's not smart enough. He loves us, he's powerful, but he's not smart. Or he loves us, he's smart, but he's not powerful. Or, <clears throat> worst case scenario, he's powerful, he's all-knowing, but he doesn't love us. And so it doesn't matter to him. Actually, there's another possibility, too, that God himself is in the process of evolution. So, you know, God was impersonal, he was a God of knowledge, he got things started. Once he got things started, he began to say, hmm, I think I want to develop a relationship with these people. I want to come down and show my love to them. So after millions and billions of years, why finally he gets around to <clears throat> figuring out how to do that. Okay, so there, there are many misconceptions about who God is. If we start with theistic evolution, <coughs> and uh, I just wanted to point out, there are many other areas, and we'll be dealing with many of these areas, many other areas uh, that are impacted by our view of creation, not only the nature of God, the nature of humanity. Remember, relationships depend on our knowledge of God, knowledge of ourselves, our relationship with God. There's the foundation of morality, nature of sin, soteriology, nature of Christ, nature of scripture, the second coming. We wanna see if we can get through all of those today, okay? So, uh, the God of creation is the God of love, knowledge, power. He's self-existent, and of course we haven't dealt with everything here, just a quick summary, but when we have the God of evolution, as you pointed out, what is the relationship between tooth and claw and the God who reveals himself as love, knowledge, and power? And the answer is God can't be all three of those things at once. Now, of course, as soon as you start into theistic evolution, you're no longer accepting what is your guide? Bible. The Bible, okay? You're no longer accepting the Bible as your guide, so you're into a combination of science and philosophy as your guide, and so you have to develop a philosophical God because you don't have the Bible to guide you. Now, maybe you get some great ideas out of the Bible, 
but that is not your primary guide. So <clears throat> you're immediately into the realm of philosophy. You're immediately into the realm of philosophy. And uh, so if you're going to do that, philosophically, you can't have a god of love, knowledge, and power all at the same time. So we'll shortly have up on the screen. I apologize for that. We haven't figured out what's happening to my computer. Uh, <clears throat> oh, that'd be great. Thank you. Okay, what does it say about us? What does, what does theistic evolution say about it? Well, first of all, what does the Bible say about us? Fearfully and wonderfully made, okay, so we have a wonderful creator. Nothing like what we're describing here with evolution, with tooth and claw. Okay, good. We were created in the image of God, okay? Which means we were created for fellowship with God. We were created in such a way that our characters meshed with his character so that we could have fellowship with God. Okay, anything else that the Bible tells us about ourselves? Okay, dominion over the natural world that he has created. Anything else? We're created in the image of God. Okay, God is our provider, so we're dependent upon him. Anything else about humanity? <clears throat> Are we sinners? Okay, in need of a savior? Okay, okay. Now, what does theistic evolution say about that? Were we created in the image of God? Are we sinners? Theistic evolution. What does the Bible tell us about sin? How did we get into sin? Pardon? Okay, sin is a transgression of God's law. But what is God's law, just as an aside here? Okay. Transcript of God's character. So when we sin, we are violating the character of God. Okay. So how did sin come into the world, according to Scripture? By one man, okay. And by one man we will have the salvation of humanity. Okay, so, <clears throat> so uh, we were created in the image of God. We fell from that image. We can be restored only through Jesus Christ. Now, how does theistic evolution look at all of that? What does theistic evolution tell us about ourselves? Let me back up a little bit now that I've got my computer. I want to just uh, finish some of the attributes of God. Uh, I was interested, and I, I just discovered this two days ago, so I need to go back and look at this some more. But <clears throat> when you look at the texts in the Bible with, about creation, you discover that they are paired with many other characteristics of God. And like I say, this is just the beginning of the text and just the beginning of the pair. But uh, creation is, is paired with the sovereign acts of God, with the power of God, with the wisdom, knowledge, and truth of God. <clears throat> the fact that God is unsearchable, as several of you have mentioned, uh, that he is the control of history, he's a personal God, he's our savior, he's our judge, he is worthy of worship. And I'm sure when we get into this, we'll find many other texts 
Boy, we are having fun today. Okay. Okay, so coming to theistic evolution then, well, no, let me, I'm sorry, let me uh, follow through with this. Uh, there's also a lot in the Bible about the creator God and idols. Often when it talks about the creator God, it talks about the opposite of the creator God, and that is idols. <clears throat> These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, they will perish from the earth. In that day a man will look to his maker. He will not look to the altars nor to wooden images. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. <clears throat> has not God created us? Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. The Gentiles did not know God. They worshiped creation in place of the creator. In fact, I'd like us to look at Romans 1. It's very interesting to see what happens uh, when we turn from the God who has revealed himself to us. Romans 1. Uh, remember chapter 1? Paul addresses the Gentiles, and he's letting us know that the Gentiles have sinned. And, of course, the Jews are <clears throat> saying, of course, we knew that, you know, uh, proud to, to recognize that you recognize it. Then he goes to Genesis 2 and says, yeah, but the Jews have sinned also. Then he summarizes in, uh, I'm sorry, not Genesis, Romans. In Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, just as an aside, I want you to, uh, Paul starts talking about the, the Gentiles in verse 18, but I want you to look at 16 and 17 because there's an interesting parallel here that isn't very often seen. People will go to Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when they want to talk about salvation. And they, want to, then they go to Revelation, uh, Romans 1, 18, when they want to talk about the revelation of God in the natural world. But they don't put the two together. Okay, so Romans 1, 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, uh, because uh, it's the power of what? Of God? To salvation. And what does the gospel reveal? What does the gospel reveal? The love of God. The love of God? Okay. Reveals the righteousness of God. Okay. So how do we know the righteousness of God? By the gospel, right? <clears throat> okay, now he starts out with the natural world, and what do we know from God in the natural world? In verse 18. We know the wrath of God. We know his eternal power. We know his Godhead. You see the parallel there? If you start with the gospel, you know the righteousness of God. If you start with the natural world, you know his wrath, his power, and his eternal Godhead. Okay? Uh, so those who started with the natural world, because, verse 21, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I preach what? Christ, as contrasted with the foolishness of wisdom and the empiricism of the Jews who seek signs. He preaches the gospel, which has the power of the word of God. Okay, so professing to be wise, they become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and forfeited beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
and so on and so forth. So no, notice the progression here. Started with the natural world. What did that do for their knowledge of God? They didn't accept the limited knowledge of God that they had. They turned it upside down. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator, and then what? They went into all kinds of immorality. So their beliefs followed their concept as to of this idolatrous God. They went into homosexuality and so on and so forth. <coughs> and uh, there I say, it's no different today that when you start down the road of evolutionary theology, then you start having questions about morality, whether you're teaching evolution in an Adventist institution or non-Adventist institution, you're going to begin to have the same questions about morality. Okay, so coming back to human nature created in the image of God, we are part of God's plan. With theistic evolution, are we part of God's plan? Well, maybe, you know, God planned this thing over millions and billions of years, but it's, it's really kind of a stretch, isn't it? Uh, sinners in need of restoration. <clears throat> what does the Bible tell us about how we were made? Pardon? We're created, in we're created in the image of God. And what else about our creation? Wonderfully made. Okay. He formed Adam, and then what did he do? breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So Adam was a unity, right? Okay, with theistic evolution, is humanity a unity? You know, you start with this protoplasm, you come to a cell, you know, you come to a little creature, you finally come to the apes and to the chimpanzees, and finally you come to humans. Okay, at what point did God interject a human soul? At what point did his animals become moral, beings. Now, wouldn't it take a miracle to do that? If you accept the miracle of implanting a human soul into a person, why not accept the miracle of creation <clears throat> in Genesis? But furthermore, you, you see that you've got a problem then with how did, how did we become moral beings? How did, how did we suddenly discover that God intended for us to live morally? And, and now we have, we have divided the body from the spirit because the spirit is something that comes later. And so it's easy to separate it again. And so we're open to spiritualism as a result of that. Okay, so in the Bible, remember there in Matthew, uh, creation is the basis of the husband-wife relationship. Christ goes right back to creation when he's dealing with that issue. Creation forms the basis of our treatment of other humans. The Sabbath, of course, has its origin in, the Sabbath, in creation. Stewardship uh, has its origin in creation. With the theory of evolution, as we just pointed out, at what point did humanity become morally responsible? And how about the ethical issues of advocating theistic evolution in an Adventist institution. You see any ethical issues there? What are, what are some of those ethical issues? Okay, it negates the Sabbath. Okay. Inspiration of the Bible. We want to get to that. Inspiration of the Bible. Are you in the medical community? Uh, the abortion issue? Uh, 
Devalue human life, okay. So you've got an ethical issue there, okay. You know, and I'm sure it's the same with many of you, except for, for first-generation Adventists. My parents and my grandparents and their parents sacrificially gave so that we could have our schools. Why? Because they believe that this is the remnant church that has the message of God to proclaim to the entire world. And why do we send our kids to an Adventist institution? Because we want them to be converted to worldly philosophies? Is that why we send them to an Adventist institution? Okay, so, so we have a specific purpose when we send a kid to the Adventist institution. We want them to have the opportunity to open their lives to God and to accept him fully as he has revealed himself to us and to, to be part of the remnant church. Not only that, it's even family unity that's involved. You, you send a child to school, they take on a completely different worldview and even reject your worldview. What does it do to family unity when that kind of things happen? So, so there are ethical issues. In addition to that, so often this kind of thing is taught kind of underhandedly. You know, La Sierra is a unique situation because they've made it public. But so often it, it happens, you know, I don't dare tell the parents or the board members what I think but I sure don't mind telling the kids in the classroom what I think. Well, it's a basic dishonesty. It's a basic dishonesty. That's right, a basic dishonesty. So there is a major moral issue that's involved there. In the usual evolutionary theory, you have no, no fall, no savior needed, and so forth. But what do you talk, tell these folks that say, well, they came to the state of Adam and Eve through evolutionary uh, Right. The evolutionary process, but then you had a fall and then it goes on from there. Uh, what do you say to those? So it really messes up your concept of what humanity is, yeah. doesn't it? And as we'll see, if we have time, it begins to raise questions about who Jesus was, even. So, yes, and here. Also leads to lawlessness. Leads to lawlessness? Okay. That's right. Yes? If God didn't have the power to create us, then how is he going to recreate us? Ah, how is he going to recreate us? When we fall into <clears throat> sin, how is he going to bring us back to a, a, a That's right, that's right. You know, Ann and I, as we said, we ran a business. We were selling nuts and dried fruit. We were selling to the largest companies in the world. I could ship two million pounds to a customer, and if there was a problem with one pound, I would get a phone call at two in the morning from a vice president of that company to tell me he had problems with my product. We were successful because one, we protected our intellectual property, and number two, we gave highest quality in the world. Uh, number three, of course, was service and price. But those two things, our intellectual property and the highest quality in the world. Now, if it had been a public company, I would have been responsible to my shareholders for delivering that kind of quality. And so in our church, we also have the same kind of responsibility. In fact, the church, how much more important than selling nuts? You know, I mean, we're, we're giving our children the opportunity to respond to the call of God. And if that call is never extended, or if it's extended in some kind of a distorted way, so that they are being converted to an alternate worldview than the worldview of Scripture, it has serious consequences for their future. And as I said, serious consequences for family life. It has serious consequences for the future of our church. You know, are those individuals going to be the givers 
in our church, if they really aren't sure about the message of the church, the church will finally become a sociological institution instead of an institution that is carrying the word of God to the world. So the ramifications, the moral implications of, you know, trying to sneak evolution into the classroom are, are just legion. We've already discussed a lot of this. Sin, result of the transgression of God's word in the garden. God the provider. Father provided the atonement. By the way, the, the atonement is coming under question more and more, as you would expect. You know, if you aren't sure where sin came from, if you aren't sure who Jesus Christ is, the atonement is really this ancient kind of nasty doctrine that came from the pagans, and so we need to remove it from Scripture because it's embarrassing. Uh, whereas, as somebody pointed out, as Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so what is sin in the setting of theistic evolution? And if there is no sin, there is no need of a Savior. Okay, so how about Jesus then with the theory of evolution? Now, the biblical account, of course, this is not exhaustive, but he's the agent in creation. He's the divine son of God, a member of the Trinity, the one through whom the atonement was offered to humanity by his death on the cross. He's our judge. He's the one who creates the new heaven and a new earth. With the evolutionary theory, who is Jesus? Who is he? A good man. A good man. That's right. A good man. At best, a deluded man at worst. Okay, so, so Jesus no longer is the divine Son of God. He's no longer a member of the Trinity. He is simply a good man. He maybe was a moral influence. Have you heard of moral influence? Now, of course, there's some truth in the moral influence. He did come to be an influence to us, but, you know, that's not the whole truth. And so if we reject the atonement of Christ, we're rejecting an essential aspect as to who God is, and thereby has implications for the kind of relationship that we have with God. Was, uh, was he bodily resurrected from the dead? I would challenge you to go read the statement of belief again and tell me if Jesus was resurrected from the dead. If he wasn't, our faith is vain and we're still in our sins. You're right. Our faith is vain, and we're still in our sins. There were attempts to get that he was bodily resurrected from the dead into the statement of belief for an entire year from multiple individuals, and that statement is not in there. Not because we couldn't have gotten it from the floor, but there wasn't time to get it from the floor. It was designed so that there wasn't time to get it from the floor. And so as a church, we haven't stated that Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead. Okay, somebody said the nature of Scripture is called into question with theistic evolution. So, is the Bible the Word of God? Did the Holy Spirit guide the apostles and the prophets in writing it? Can we accept its worldview, which assure, assumes a literal, as literal the creation and flood account? Is the Bible the foundation of our lives for the way we live and act? Is the Bible simply the history of the evolution of human spirituality and its individual and communal expressions as traditions were passed on from generation to generation? Did God, Sinai, and God, did, did Moses, Sinai, and God actually cross paths? Those are the questions that theistic evolution raises for us. In fact, I was, I was sitting with a colleague of mine one day, and we were discussing a paper that I had written indicating that, that in academic disciplines we need to start with a biblical worldview. 
if we under, want to understand the world which God has created. And uh, this friend of mine looked up from our lunch just as he was bringing a fork of food to his mouth. And he said, Ed, if I accept what you say in that, in that paper, we'd have to look at the world through the glasses of Scripture. I was delighted. He got the point. You know, I said, yeah, that's right. That fork of food actually fell onto the plate. He couldn't imagine someone saying that the biblical worldview was the, the view from which we should view the natural world. And so what happens is we have these individuals, they want to describe the rocks and the rock pile. I'm sorry, I don't have all the artistic skill that some of you do here with my, <coughs> my overheads. But anyway, uh, the fellow on the left says that they range in size from one centimeter to 20 centimeters. The fellow on the right says no. We can determine the size of the rocks only after they have passed through a one centimeter wire mesh. Didn't I tell you? There are no rocks in that pile larger than one centimeter. But why are you discarding the rest? Oh, because they didn't fit my standard description of rock piles. And so we go looking for God. And we have a strand of this and this and this and this, and we develop our, our mesh, and then we go looking for God. Ah, there's a gem that got through. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to that. There, there's another gem right here. I'm going to hang on. Ah, there's another gem. I'm going to pull all of these gems together. And with my creativity and scientific knowledge, and, you know, I'm so smart in this 21st century, I'm going to pull it together in such a way that I have a beautiful picture of God, who is no more than what? The imagination of my own self-image. And so we start out with this beautiful God of love, the creator, truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life, savior, <clears throat> personal God, a judge, self-revealing God. In other words, I don't give power to the word of God, the, power, the word of God gives power to me. All-powerful God, as we have been saying. But you know what? It just doesn't make sense to me that he's the judge. And I don't think he's up in heaven. I mean, isn't that a foolish idea? He's up in heaven judging, judging us right now. So you know what I'm going to do? It's not going to, you know, it's fine. It's just one of the doctrines. I still have 27. There's no problem with pulling that one out. So, well, he's, he's not my judge. But this idea of all-powerful I don't know, it's just not possible for anything in the universe to be all-powerful. But, but no problem. You know, I still have my Jesus. I can still bow down and worship him. Uh, but this idea of creation, you know, we're so smart in the 21st century. I don't, I don't know that we should be talking about God as our creator, at least certainly not in the biblical sense anymore. Uh, but that's okay. I still have my Jesus. And the idea that he's the way, the truth, and the life, why contemporary philosophy and psychology is so good, uh, I don't need him to tell me how to live. Uh, and that he's self-revealing, and that he's my savior. Personal God? Well, I don't know. I don't know if he's a personal God, or whether he's just the God of deism. The God that set everything in motion. Doesn't really care what happens to us down here. Well, you know what? If you have a God of love without anything else, what do you have? And so we begin picking apart the pieces. And finally, we end up with an idol of our own making. These two systems, you know, so often we want to compromise between the two systems. We want to take a little bit of this, and we want to take a little bit of this, and we want to figure out how to put the two together. And it's, it's just like these fellows here playing ball. They want to find a compromise between soccer and, and golf. Tell me, where is the compromise between those two games? 
Would you want to be the goalie there in, in that picture? You've got two different ball fields, two different sets of rules, two different balls, two different ways of handling the balls, two different umpires, completely different. You can invite one side to come and play ball with you, or you can say, we'll join you in your ball game. But there isn't compromise between the two. And how often we try to find that compromise rather than recognizing that biblical truth really is God's prerogative, not my prerogative. You know, I'm not the one that puts God in the box and tells him how he can behave. God is not dependent upon my intellect or wisdom or power. It's his word that is in control. Now, how about the, the second coming? If we have problems with theistic evolution, how about the second coming? And here in 2 Peter, we find that there will be scoffers that will come in the last days. They'll be questioning, you know, his coming, just as they question the beginning of this earth and question the flood, not realizing that the same power that was in creation and the same power that brought about the destruction by the flood will also be in effect at the end of time. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth. Christ likened the second coming to the time of Noah when people were scoffing and so on, carrying on their lives and not believing in terms of the second coming. Scripture points to the transformation that God would like to make in our lives. What manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord? Beloved, now are we the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So God wants us to enter that relationship with him. And if we deny the power of creation, you know, the power to transform lives, where will we be when we come to his second coming? I want to look at a few passages uh, just before we conclude. Oh, my. I'm sorry, this is a call I've got to take. Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. That's, this is a good time. We've just been talking about you. Yeah, yeah, we've been talking about creation. Yeah. Oh, you think you created the world? Really? Well, now, wait a minute. You know, this group is an intelligent group. Uh, we have theologians and scientists and, and top lay people and, and business people here. You, you think they're going to accept that? That, that you're, oh, you created the world in, in six days, life on this planet in six days? Well, now, this is just going to blow their minds. Well, you know what? We'll check this out. You, you give us what you think you did, and we'll check it out, and we'll, we'll see if that's actually what you did. Wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait. God? 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 I think I just lost the connection. So often we try to put God into our own personal box and accept, instead of really accepting who God is. Let's turn to 1 John. 1 John, um, of course we've been studying that for our Sabbath school lessons. You know, is it, is it important what we believe? 1 John 1, um, Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice what? The truth. Okay, we don't practice the truth. Uh, verse 
4 of chapter 2. He who says, I know him, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and what? The truth is not in him. You see how the truth is important to God? And moving on for the sake of time to uh, 5, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who what? Is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And notice the next verse. Little children, keep yourself from what? From idols. Okay, very good. And then going to Peter. Oh, no, one more thing I wanted to do in John, sorry. John uh, 1, verse, chapter 2, verse 14, the last half. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and what? The word of God. Yeah, you've come, you've come over evil, overcome evil. Why are you strong? Because the word of God abides in you. And that's why you are strong. Uh, move it, let's move to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. In him you tr- uh, 13. In him you trusted after you heard the what? The word of truth. Very good. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Um, let's see, I think I'm going to miss, well, yeah, let's go to chapter 4, starting uh, with verse 11. And he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, and what? Knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, what? Tossed to and fro and carried with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and so on and so forth, but speaking the truth and love and so on. And then at the last, the very last section there, we find uh, that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit, remember in John 16, is the one that brings conviction to our life. And he brings conviction to our life through the Holy Spirit. Just lastly, I want to look at at Hebrews, and we'll look at Hebrews very, very quickly. I want you to notice how Paul brings so many elements together, and so I want to leave you with this picture of the wholeness of doctrine that we have. We can't go and pick and choose a little part here and a little part there and and decide what we're going to reject, that it is a beautiful whole, and we don't want to destroy the picture as we would have if we had pulled the various colors out of that carpet that we were talking about. Uh, Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, 2 and 3. What did Paul start talking about immediately? Jesus. Okay, started talking about Jesus. What about Jesus? Okay, a priest. That's what he's setting up in the whole book, that he's a priest. Okay, purged our sins. What else? He's our advocate, okay? Right, our maker. He's our maker. Okay, and because he's our maker, how about the power of his word? His word is powerful, okay? It's, it, and it lasts forever. It exists forever. Okay, Fail, fails not, okay? Very good. And uh, then, and there's, there are other places, but we'll move on through here in, in chapter 4. 
Well, chapter 3 is very interesting. It's talking about the children of Israel when they were at Kadesh Barnea, and they didn't go in to the land of Canaan. Why didn't they go into the land of Canaan? Because of unbelief. Unbelief in what? The Word of God. Okay. So the Word of God came and told them, you know, go in and take the, the land. And what did they say? No God in his right mind would ask us to go up against the giants in the land and go through the fortifications and so on and so forth. Okay, so we can't do it. Okay. Uh, that's where faith comes in. That's right. So here we have the, the doubt chapter in Hebrews 3. In Hebrews 11, we have the faith chapter. Yes? Every time one does that, it seems that we're doing the same thing. We're denying God's power. We're That's right. That's right. We're denying his power. We're denying our wisdom and relying on our power and God's wisdom instead of God's wisdom. Okay, and then, uh, as was mentioned here earlier, we come down and, and he says, There remains a rest, therefore... They didn't enter into God's rest, but there remains a rest, and God would like us to cease from our activities, just as he wanted the Israelites to cease from their own attempt to save themselves. And uh, let's see. Let us, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. Now notice this, verse 12. For the word of God is what? Sharper, yes, okay, the word of God. It's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul, the spirit, the joints and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, remember, he told us that, that Jesus was the creator and that he created through the power of his word. And now he's coming back to the theme of the power of his word. And he says that power is in his word, in, in scripture. And Scripture has the ability to make its own way into the human heart so that we might have the rest that God intends that we should have. Is he using Israel there as a metaphor to stress God's final rest in, in chapter 4? Okay, okay. I would think that he probably, probably is. Okay. Now notice that, that the word of God is powerful and it brings conviction. And then he immediately goes in you know, if, if we're convicted under, under the Holy Spirit, what do we need? We need a high priest, don't we? Yes, a high priest that can cover our sins. And then moving on to, to chapters uh, 8 and 9. So this high priest is the one who died on our behalf, whose blood was shed only through the mission, remission of sin, is forgiveness of sins. And so, under the power of the Holy Spirit, we are convicted with the Word of God. The power of the Word of God makes its way into our lives, which, which helps us to realize our need of a Savior and our need of a high priest. And then going on to chapter 10, verse 17, uh, verse 16, this is the new covenant that I made with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and into their minds. Again, this powerful God who created the world through his word will give us that word and he will put his law into our hearts and into our minds. And their lawlessness and sin I will remember no more. And uh, verse 37. For yet a little, little while he who is coming will come and will not tarry. You know how he's, notice how he's putting this all together in one package? You know, our creator, 
our Redeemer, our High Priest, the role and the power of his word in our lives. And uh, now the second coming is tied into that. And then uh, in chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand what? The worlds were framed. How do we understand that? By faith, by the word of God, okay, rather than by our own human inventions. And so here Paul sees, he's, he's pulling numerous doctrines together, and they all fit together as a whole. So what I would hope from this lecture then, by way of summary, that we would see is that God has given us the Bible. He's given us the doctrines in the Bible. Why? So that we might know him so that we might accept who he is, so that we might understand ourselves, so that we might understand how we can appropriately relate to God, and so that we might open our lives to enter relationship with God. Three more minutes, was it? Okay, very good. So just one very quick uh, analogy where righteousness by faith, one aspect of righteousness by faith that sometimes we, we fail to recognize, and that is the need to accept forgiveness. Uh, when my wife and I were first married, my mom gave us a poodle, a uh, very well-trained poodle. We didn't have to worry about her messing up the house. And one day we went shopping and came back, and we couldn't find Jolie anyplace. Looked and looked and looked for Jolie, and we couldn't find Jolie. Uh, searched the house several times, and finally we found her crouched under the piano stool. And we said, Jolie, you know, come on. Uh, we want to hold you in our arms. We want to love you again. And, and then we found out why she was crouched under the piano stool. We cleaned up the mess and came back and said, come on, Jolie, but you know what? She remained crouched under the piano stool. You know, God offers us forgiveness in order that we might be reestablished in our relationship with him. But so often we reject his offer of forgiveness. Now, why would we reject it? Maybe we're too proud. We don't need your forgiveness. Uh, maybe we think we're too sinful. We aren't worthy of us. Uh, th there are so many different reasons why we might reject his forgiveness. But regardless of the reason, if we reject his forgiveness, we are rejecting what? His desire to be, to be reestablished in his relationship with us. Yes? When he, if you do reject it there, that is uh, not a problem because uh, God has given us that power of choice. That's, That's right. That's right. Yes. 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 That's right. It's our power of choice. We can choose to reject it, but when we choose to reject it, we really are rejecting the entrance of a relationship with God. And that's why God came to live for us, to die on our behalf. That's why he was resurrected. That's why he ascends to the most holy place to minister on our behalf. That's why he's returning again because he wants us to be restored to fellowship with him. Let's bow our heads. Our loving Father, we bow to thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know who you are as you truly are because you revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you've also told us about the world in which we live in order that we might understand the environment in which we live. We pray that we might open our lives to the revelation of yourself in Scripture to the operation of the Holy Spirit upon our lives that brings conviction and forgiveness, to the power of the Holy Spirit in order that we might live for you and proclaim you because we're looking forward to that day when we can live with you and with one another throughout eternity. Amen.